I'm Brett Wiley, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so uh, glad you chose to worship with us this morning. Man, I'm, I'm just so excited to celebrate Holy Week together as a church and to ask the Lord to continue to revive us and renew us as a people. So can I pray for us before we get into the word this morning? Father, we do, we pause. We want to settle our busy hearts. Many of us are even thinking about where we're going to lunch or uh, what happened the last week or how our kids are doing in kids' life. God, would you just settle us for a minute? Your word is not a cheap thing. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing. It's, it's something that can do a real work in our hearts. It's something that can change us and mold us and shape us. Lord, you are a living and active God who uses this living active and active word. So would you come and speak to us this morning? But Lord, I, I can't help but stop and pray before we open your word. Many in our country are hurting this morning. Lord, I think of Covenant Presbyterian Church, Lord, and the Covenant School that lost three students and three staff members this week, Lord. I think of a pastor of a church who has to get ready for Easter, who lost his baby girl, Lord. And as we watch children process through the sanctuary this morning for Palm Sunday, I can't help but think about the, the terrible pain and loss of our brothers and sister in Nashville. So would you be very near to the brokenhearted? Would you save the crushing spirit? And Lord, as we think about those who have lost their lives, had their businesses or homes damaged by hurricanes in Little Rock, Arkansas, or Amory, Mississippi, or Tennessee, or Illinois, or other places, Lord, their lives were upended this week. And so we pray again that as we think about the King Jesus, the gentle and righteous King Jesus, that they might feel your very nearness this week. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if I've got a little feedback, but it's okay. Um, theologian Richard Lovelace once said, in the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. What an apt description of our reactionary world. We, we, we feel this, don't we? If, if just the right leader could come along, if we could get the right leader in place, then everything would be okay in the world. If we could just get the right laws voted in, then, then we'd finally find the peace we are longing for in the world. If we, could, if we could just have this kind of society or this political system, then, then everything would be all right. Hear me, we, we, we should advocate for just leaders and we should advocate for just laws. But this groping and searching for the right ruler has been going on for millennia. And in some ways, this is really the story of the Bible. I mean, one way, at least one way you could sum up the whole Old Testament would be to say that creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. You see, God created us to live and flourish under his good and just rule. He was our head. 
But, but the core struggle, the core sin of human beings is that we rejected his right rule. We want to be our own kings. We want to make our own rules. We want it our way. Every other sin is, is, is fruit of this core struggle. And the scriptures show us really quickly that we make terrible kings. And so almost immediately in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that someone else is coming. Someone else is coming to make all things right. As God curses the serpent in verse 13, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The offspring or seed of Eve was coming to undo what we did in the garden by rejecting God's righteous and just rule. And this theme continues throughout the whole Old Testament. The seed is coming. He is coming. It's whispered behind every story. You hear it whispered as God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and tells him that he, through his offspring, will bless the whole earth. We hear it whispered as Jacob blesses his son Judah and tells him the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is to come, whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. We hear it whispered as Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy that God will raise up from among them one who is a prophet like him. We hear it whispered most recently in our sermon series as God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, 16 that your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. And this is where we find ourselves when we get to the beginning of the Gospels and the New Testament. God's people had had many rulers throughout their history. And even the most godly of them had shown themselves not to be the promised king to come, the promised one who is being anticipated to make all things right. See, the people knew the promises of God. And they heard the whisper of the coming of the Messiah, the coming king behind each of them. And they longed to see this day. We see this longing as we read the story of Jesus. Shortly into his ministry, John the Baptist sends one of his followers to ask Jesus a question in Matthew eleven three: 3. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? What is John asking? He's asking Jesus if he is the one they have been waiting for. Are you the promised one, the seed of Eve, the king of, da of David, the son of David? the Messiah. Now, I know, know this is a lot of background before we really get into our text this morning, but this is going to help us as we look at this story in Luke, because we really need to read this story through this messianic hope and expectation. And as we look at Luke 19, 28 through 40, what I want us to see is that Jesus is the promised king, but he's also the perplexing king, and ultimately he is the proper king. So first, let's look at Jesus as the promised king. Since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been intentionally and resolutely making his way up to Jerusalem. As we come to our text this morning, this journey is coming to an end. It says, as he comes close to Bethany, a village he knows well, 
which is just a short ways from Jerusalem, he sends a couple of his disciples on a somewhat, on what, at least what might have been a somewhat confusing mission. He tells them he wants them to go into a village and find a young donkey or colt that's tied up, and he wants, to, wants them to untie it and bring it to him. He says, oh, and if the, if the owners are wondering why two dudes are untying this donkey and taking it away, he says, if they ask you about it, you just tell them the Lord needs it. See, I've been trying to pray a truck into existence for some time now. But I think I'm going to try this method instead. I'm just going to walk up to somebody driving a four-door F-150, and I'm going to get in. And when they say, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to say, the Lord needs it. And just see what happens. Okay, forget everything I just said. It's theologically incorrect. Don't do that. But seriously, let's not miss what Jesus is doing here. Let's not miss that Jesus is in full control of what's happening here. This is his plan. No one could thwart it. It's important to always remember that Jesus went freely and willingly to the cross, and he went freely and willingly to Jerusalem. He's not making things up as he goes. He has decreed these things from eternity past. And Luke tells us that the two disciples go and find the young donkey, just like Jesus says they would, and brings it back to him. So why? What is the significance of this part of the story? The Gospel of Matthew helps us here. In telling the same story of Jesus' triumphal entry, he writes, This took place so that, was, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, 500 years before, 500 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, the prophet Zechariah wrote, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew and more implicitly Luke are trying to be clear as possible that Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. He is the answer to the whispers behind the promises of the Old Testament. He is the seed of Eve that will crush the head of Satan. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the Messiah, the expected one. He is here. This is why Jesus sends the two disciples to the village, and this is why Luke includes this story, this, this part of the story. But why a donkey? I mean, there's so many cool animals you could have rode in on. You could have rode on a lion, an elephant, or even just a cool horse. You could, have, you could have rode in on an animal that really says, hey, I'm here to change things up. But this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't come in the ways that we think he should. And he doesn't even come in the ways that we want or expect. He comes in the ways we need. This is why he's not just the promised king, he's also the perplexing king. Read with me, starting in verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. This procession 
This perplexing procession is a demonstration of the type of king Jesus is. And it's a demonstration of the type of kingdom that he was there to establish. Typically, when a king was entering a city, especially at times of war, they rode in on a war horse because this communicated their power, their military might. But not Jesus. No, Jesus rides in on a donkey, on an animal of peace. And while there was a diversity of thought in first century Judaism around the idea of Messiah, for many, their messianic hope, their eager expectation was tied to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and the Davidic throne by a redeemer from the line of David. And this restoration would include the liberation of Israel from Roman rule. I love that we just finished the life of David series because this hope shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine. The thought is that God would raise up a son from the line of David to restore the glory days of Israel, to take them back to the great nation that God promised Abraham he would be. We pick up on some of that hope and the shouts of the people as Jesus rides on the donkey. Luke tells us that they shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew tells us that they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118, 25, means save us or please save us. And maybe most explicit of all, the gospel of Mark records that the crowd says the same phrases as Luke and Matthew, but he adds, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The the crowd isn't mincing words here. They are recognizing and welcoming Jesus as the promised king, the son of David who has come to save them. Even their throwing of their cloaks on the ground has precedence because the people threw their cloaks on the ground in front of Jehu Jehu in 2 Kings 9 to proclaim that he was king of Israel. For those in this crowd, this was a coronation ceremony. Their salvation was at hand and Jesus was about to make all their dreams come true. But that's not what happens, at least not in the way that they wanted it to. You see, there was nothing wrong about what the crowd shouted that day. They were right to welcome Jesus as king. They were right to welcome him as Messiah. They were right to cry, save us. The only problem was that Jesus wasn't the king that they were expecting and that they didn't know what they really needed saving from. There was a greater power ruling over the people and a greater enemy than the Roman Empire. In Colossians, Paul calls this power the domain of darkness. Theologian John Webster describes it this way, simply and comprehensively, the domain of darkness is the tyrannous reality of life apart from God and opposed to God. Sin means bondage. Sin makes us into helpless subjects of a very ruthless and hostile dictator. Of course, we don't realize this. That's part of the tyranny. We think we're free. We think we're lords of all. Let's make this plain. Many that were in this crowd thought that their great enemy was Rome, but Jesus knew that sin was the greater enemy. Many wanted Jesus to change their circumstances, but Jesus wanted to change their hearts. They wanted the restoration of a physical kingdom, but Jesus was there to establish an eternal and and spiritual kingdom that could never be overthrown. They wanted it now, and Jesus was saying, the kingdom is nearer than you think it is. We can relate to this. 
Often we think the biggest problem in our lives are our circumstances or what's right in front of our eyes. I just need Jesus to fix this and I'll be all right. I just need Jesus to give me this and everything will be fine. If he would just give me a better job, if he would just help me find the right spouse, if he could just help me make a little more money, if he could just have this season be over, then, then I could find peace. But we know this is a false hope. There's a cycle we see continually amongst God's people in scripture. God saves them out of Egypt, out of slavery from Egypt, only for them to worship a golden calf. He leads them to the promised land only for them to fall into the pagan worship of the people around them. He sends them judges to free them from their oppressors only for them to fall away again and again. He gives them a king when they ask for it only for the kings and the people to consistently revert back to idol worship. Israel's biggest problem wasn't others. It was them. And this is us too. Think about a person with a gambling addiction who time and time again has gotten themselves into financial ruin because of their struggle. It's been a constant cycle. They come to their father or mother and say, please, can you pay my debt one last time? I promise you this is the last time. I'll never ask you again. I'm never going back to it. A generous parent might pay their debt and take away the most visible problem in their life. But the real issue is what's underneath. It's the addiction. You see, we are idle addicts. We are constantly looking for the thing that's going to bring us real peace and satisfy all our longings, whether it's power or control or pleasure or wealth or a person. We are looking for the right ruler. And even if God takes away one idol, one will rise up in its place. Our biggest problem is not our idols. It's our idol addicted hearts. That's our greatest need. That's our real need. Israel needed more than just national peace. They needed more than just liberation from Rome. They needed real peace. And that's what Jesus came to bring. He shows that by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's coming to bring lasting shalom. And that can only come by creation returning to its rightful ruler its true head. And it can only happen by the real hostility between God and man being defeated, sin. This is why Jesus came. But he doesn't bring peace the way the world does. He doesn't bring it through violence or power or might like Babylon or Rome. He brings it through self-sacrifice, through his own humiliation, through his offering himself on our behalf. He truly is the perplexing king, not the king we expect, not the king we even want at times, but he's the king we need. And so he rides into God's city on a donkey to announce that his upside down kingdom has arrived and that nothing will ever be the same again. Finally, let's notice that Jesus is the proper king. And when I say proper, I don't mean that he had good manners. I mean that he's the right king. He's the true king. King. As the people are shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Verse 39 records some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, these stones would cry out. 
While the general demeanor of the people in the crowd is marked by joy and jubilance, there are some religious leaders in the crowd who aren't happy with the scene that's taking place. Their words are telling here. They call Jesus teacher or rabbi. They are fine with acknowledging Jesus as a teacher. But to welcome him like a Messiah and to praise him like a king goes too far. Jesus, stop this madness. Rebuke them, they say. Don't you love Jesus' response? He said, I I, I can tell them to stop. But if they stop, those rocks over there are going to start crying out. Is that what you want? At least that's my sarcastic version, the Brett Wiley sarcastic version. What is Jesus communicating here? He's saying to this group of Pharisees that you are uncomfortable with the cries of the crowd because you don't understand who I am. Because if you realized who I am, you would know that the whole universe was created to praise me. Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have have been created through him and for him. This is the one who's riding on top of a donkey, on top of borrowed clothes that day. The one through whom everything was made and the one for whom everything was made. This is why Jesus was going to be praised one way or another. It was inevitable. You see, Jesus was not just some human king or savior that had come to rescue the people. And he wasn't just a good teacher that taught nice things. He was the eternal son of God, God in the flesh. And as such, the crowd was doing the most natural thing in the world by praising him. They weren't just welcoming the king of Israel. They were welcoming the king of the universe. And the group of Pharisees had a better chance of stopping the sun from shining that day than by stopping Jesus from receiving praise. Do you know that there are some things in life that we don't get to have an opinion about? I know that's heresy in a world full of expert opinions, but there are some things that are just objectively true. And when something's objectively true, you don't get to consider it. You don't get to weigh it. You just have to receive it. I mean, I mean things like the truth that a great salad is better than, oh, forgive me, I just said, a great steak is better than a great salad. I mean, truths like the fact that the hills of Northwest Arkansas are prettier than the Flint Hills. Truths like the the fact that the 1990s were the greatest decade in history. (laughs) Or the fact that Garth Brooks is the greatest musical artist of all time. These things are simply true. You just have to receive them. You You don't get to have an opinion about them. But seriously, think on this for just a moment with me. Think on this. Do you know who Jesus is? If Jesus really is who the Bible says that he is, if he's fully God and fully man, if he's the one that upholds the universe by the power of his word, the one that was before all things and in whom all things hold together, if he's the beginning and the end, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the mighty father, prince of peace, eternal, mighty God, the holy, holy, holy one who is Lord of all, If that's who he is, then his kingship is not something we get to consider. It's not something we get to have an opinion on or weigh. 
It's only something we can receive. Listen, Jesus is king. That's just an objective truth. And he is king whether we decide to praise him or not. Because if we don't, then the rocks will cry out. I'm not trying to say that we should engage our minds when we're thinking through the things of our faith. We should. I'm not saying we just have to believe or else. But what I am saying is that if your first response when confronted with the person of Jesus is to engage in intellectual speculation or existential rumination rather than worshipful adoration, then you haven't yet fully realized who God is and who Jesus is. You see, I think we are more like the Pharisees in Luke 19 than we want to admit. Sure, we are happy to receive some of the teachings of Jesus. Maybe we even like the idea of Jesus being our friend that we get to take advice from from time to time. But king, Lord of all, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I think I know my life best, Jesus. I think I, I know what I need more than, than anyone else. I'm happy for Jesus to help me navigate some of life's journey, but, but to make him captain of the ship? I, I don't know. Why do we get uncomfortable when we start talking about receiving Jesus as king? Because there can only be one king. And many of us are sitting on the thrones of our lives, whether we know it or not. We have spent a lifetime building our many kingdoms that are centered on our perspectives, our desires, our expectations, our preferences. And the thought of giving all that up to allow someone else to sit on the throne brings up all kinds of fears and defenses. But through the Holy Spirit, we need to tell ourselves a better story this morning, friends. We need to see the kind of king that Jesus is. He didn't come to take our freedom, but to give us real freedom. He didn't come to steal our peace, but to give us lasting peace. And he didn't come to make us slaves, but to make us sons. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is really good news. And that's the kind of king he is. Jesus came to bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey some 2,000 years ago, knowing that that road would ultimately lead to his death. Listen, Jesus is not the king we deserve or even the king that we want at times, but he is the king that we need. So then how do we respond? Brett, that's all great. How do we respond? Immediately after our scene in Luke 19, the author records that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why does Jesus weep as he's coming into God's city? Why does he weep? Because this city that he loved and this people that he loved, in verse 41 tells us, did not know what would bring them peace. They did not know what would bring peace. What would bring peace? Jesus the real Messiah. And verse 44, because they did not recognize the time when God visited them. Did you hear that? Because they did not recognize the time when God visited them. Jesus is weeping because he's a good king that wants all his people to come into his kingdom. And he's weeping because some of his people weren't recognizing who he was. And his heart broke for it. 
Jesus wept because the people of Israel, the vast majority, missed him. They did not recognize him. They didn't see that he was the king they needed, the Messiah that had been promised, the one that God had promised way back in the garden. So we respond well by recognizing who Jesus is. If we only see him as a great teacher, a good teacher, or a great example, then we haven't recognized him at all. You see, the only way to experience the kingdom of his beloved son is to receive him as king, to give him your full allegiance. Nothing less will suffice. Creation is no longer headless. It's not. We no longer have to desperately search for our head. The right ruler has come. The question is, will we praise him this morning? Because if we don't praise him, even the rocks will cry out. Everything was made through him and for him. And that's true of you, whether you know it or believe it or not. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that right now, there's someone who looks like a man of certain height, a Palestinian Lord who's sitting on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning because he was the right king. He was your eternal son. He's the one who was promised because Lord, honestly, we can't get ourselves out of this mess. We see what's happening in our world all around us, the chaos, the violence, Lord. And we're like, how, how can we get out of this? We're desperately searching for the right ruler, Lord. And, and the reality is that Jesus has already come. The right ruler has already come. We need only to recognize him, Lord. So Lord, if we haven't this morning, would you help us to see King Jesus as the real Messiah for the first time this morning? Or if we have and and we've been allowing idols to cloud our vision of him, Lord, our sight of him, would you open our eyes, Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see your son clearly for who he is. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you that you're the type of king that rides on a donkey. Thank you that you're the king that gave his life for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.